How are we doing today, church? You good? Good. Awesome. It's so great to be here with you and uh, just to come and uh, to worship and uh, celebrate with you and, um, and also just engage with God's Word this morning and, and see what He would desire to show us. As I mentioned already, we're beginning with this new series. It's called The Empty Throne. It's a, it's a series we're going to be walking through the book of Judges, seeking what God would, would show us through, through the, the nation of Israel in this time period. The big, the big point, the big question that we're going to wrestle with today is, what are the causes and the consequences of partial obedience in our life? What causes us to obey up to a certain point but then not follow through all the way? Uh, what causes us to, uh, to not fully devote ourselves to the way that God has laid out for us to live? And then what are the consequences? When we do that, what's the result? What happens if we do that? And the nation of Israel in this time period uh, gives us a great example of what that, that looks like in our life. And so, uh, so I wanted to um, encourage you to turn to Judges chapter 1. And as you're doing that, uh, Judges, if you're looking in the Old Testament, so we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges, right? So it's coming in. Book number 7, and, and it's significant in the place there. And since we're beginning the series here, I just want to set it up for you guys a little bit. We begin, obviously, in Genesis is the, the book of creation. It's the creator God coming and making the world good, making an Adam and Eve to, to live and abide with him in, in his presence. But then Adam and Eve's rebellion, their sin, separates them from God. It causes them to be cast out of the garden. And, and it's really a piece of where this idea of the empty throne comes from, that, um, that God is the rightful ruler of our lives, that he is the king seated upon the throne. And when we're living our life in the right way, we recognize him as the king and we live our life under his lordship. Uh, but what we can do sometimes is we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are actually the ones who are sitting on the throne. And, uh, and don't be fooled because we can't remove God from his throne. It's not like we kicked God off the throne of our life. Uh, we just tricked ourselves into thinking that we were the ones sitting there. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They fell for this, this deception that we still fall for often today, uh, that, that we can be like God. He says, uh, the serpent tricked them. He said, if you, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. And the, and the unwritten uh, undertone is that then you won't need God anymore. Then you can be your own king. And so Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. They were cast out of the garden. Things deteriorated from there to the point where God wiped out uh, the population of the earth with a flood and, and saved only Noah and his family. Uh, but when they landed and they began to repopulate the earth, the sin problem continued because it resided in their hearts. Even in, in the best people who lived at that time, there was still a sin problem that was continuing forward. And so time passed on. We came to a man named Abraham who was a man of great faith. And uh, the Bible says that, uh, that God counted his faith as righteousness. Uh, he believed in God. He put his faith in God. And God said, I have enacted a plan to restore humanity to myself. He says, uh, your rebellion has separated you from me, but I began the day that Adam and Eve left the garden to enact this plan that I've had since the beginning of time to restore humanity to me, and you're going to play a pivotal part in that. Your family is going to be the vehicle through which I bring salvation to the world. I'm going to bless the nations through your family. And so God keeps his promise to Abraham, and he gives him a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and and the brothers are, are jealous of the love that Jacob has for the one son, Joseph. And so they take him and they cast him in a pit and they sell him off into slavery in Egypt. He goes as a slave, but through the hand of God upon him, he rises to this position of high power and ultimately is in a position that when there's a famine in the land, those same brothers that, 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 that sold him into slavery that were on the verge of killing him come 
and he offers them forgiveness, and he saves his family, and they, and they all move to Egypt with him, and they're saved from the famine. And then they, they grow and expand and expand to the point where the Egyptians get afraid. They're like, hey, these Israelites are going to overrun us. They're going to take over. And so they put them into forced slave labor, and they make them work until the point where the people of Israel cry out to God and say, God, rescue us. And so he sends Moses as, as, a, as a rescuer, as his, as his hand and his mouth. And he goes and he does great signs and wonders, and he brings the people out. He parts the Red Sea. They go across. They go to the foot of the mountain, and God gives the law and says, now you're my people. And now I'm going to show you what it's like to live with me on the throne, and me as your God, and me as your king, and me as your ruler. And he lays that out for them. Uh, but that generation was, was wayward. Uh, even though they'd seen God do these amazing things, uh, their hearts were hardened. And, uh, and so they spent spies. He said, I'm taking you to this promised land. They send spies into the promised land. There's 12 spies that go. Ten come back with a bad report. Two come back with a good report. And they listened to the ten who reported badly. They said, it's too hard. The cities are too fortified. There's giants in the land. We'll never be able to do it. Two of them said, this is a good land. <laughs> There's grapes the size of my head in there. We should, we should go and take this land. God said he's going to give it to us. But they didn't listen to those two. They listened to the ten. And so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died. And then God brought them into the promised land after Moses died with his servant Joshua. So we're up to book six now, okay? That's, uh, this is pretty good, right? Six books of the Bible in like three and a half minutes. So Joshua leads them in, you know, the battle of Jericho, right? They go into the land. God gives them this incredible victory at Jericho. He's giving them all these incredible victories. And then the book of Judges begins with these words, after the death of Joshua. So Joshua was another great leader, and suddenly this great leader is gone, and now the people are left without a specific leader. And they're in a position to say, either we're going to put God, not put God, but acknowledge that God is on the throne, or we're going to do it our way. And sadly, what uh, a phrase that's repeated in the book of Judges is, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the state of the land at that time. That's what they chose. They said, instead of unifying under God as our king, we're each going to do what we think is right in our own eyes. And so that should sound incredibly familiar to you, <laughs> because it's the culture that we live in today. And so there's, there's real great parallels as we look at this. It's a mirror image of, of what we experience in our own culture uh, America was founded on, on a lot of, of principles with the idea of one nation under God and God we trust that there was, uh, even though we've never had a king, we've never been a monarchy, right? We've always been a democracy, but, but the, the concept of God as king, that his moral law guided everything that we did was kind of an understanding from the beginning. But we've arrived at a time in our nation where that's no longer the case. The throne appears to be empty. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And so there's a lot that we can learn from this book about the, the consequences and the causes of that sort of thinking. The book of Judges takes us from that time period of Joshua's death all the way up to the time of the kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And so what we're going to see here is the period in between there where there was no king, where everybody did what they wanted, and God rose up these saviors that we know as, as judges. They were imperfect and they were, they were partial in their work of salvation, but God used these people to come and to, uh, at different times, bring redemption and bring salvation to the nation of Israel. But it was always short-lived. It was not lasting, and, and the, the returns diminished over time. So are you guys ready to jump into this? It's, it's, it's a lot of text, and, um, and we're going to just pull it apart bit by bit. But I'm excited uh, to dig into it with you. Will, you. will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thanks for, for bringing us here today. Thanks for allowing us the opportunity to study your word. Thanks for the things that I know that we're going to learn and see in it today. Lead us, guide us, direct us, help us to see your hand in all of it, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as we begin in, uh, in verse 1, as I said, it begins with after the death of Joshua. And some scholars actually argue that that's not the, the first words of the book. That's, they would argue that that was actually the title of the book, that the entire book was called After the Death of Joshua. And so it gives us some, some parameters to kind of understand what we're going to dig into and what we're going to see. But, but let's see how this unfolds as people begin. And so it says in verse 1, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him and then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him. And he defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Adonai Bezek uh, fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. All right, off to a good start, right? First of all, we got like blood and violence right away, so it, it feeds uh, our, our strange American appetite, right? But, but the people are listening to what God is saying to them, right? They, uh, they began, they didn't say, all right, let's go do it. They said, God, what do you want us to do? Who should go up first? Who should attack? And he said, Judah go. And they, they listened, they obeyed him, and they went forward, and God gave them victory. He went before them. He, he, he brought the enemy into their hands, and then even their enemy who they conquered had to acknowledge, like, hey, this was the hand of the Lord. I did this, and now this is God uh, bringing justice upon me. I did this to all these other kings, and now He's returned it back on me. This is God's hand at work. He recognized that it wasn't the Israelites. It was God working through them. Let's continue. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Iman and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sephir. And Galeb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And so we're continuing on in this path of obedience, and, and we zoom out from the, the, the national level, the, the tribal level, uh, down to these individuals, Caleb. And you guys remember I told you that they sent spies into the land uh, to spy out the promised land many, many, many years ago. And, and one of them was named Joshua. And the other one was named Caleb, the two that came back and brought a good report and said, we should go get this land. And so now 40 years later, Caleb's a, an old guy at this point, right? He should probably be leaving the, uh, the battles to the young bucks. But he's like, no, I'm, I'm up there on the front lines. I'm battling, right? He has a heart for it. And he's so invested in it that he says, hey, whoever takes the city, I will give him my daughter. Uh, that man will be worthy to marry my daughter. And so he's invested. He's, he's embracing the cost of this battle personally. He's investing in it. And then when Othniel grabs, uh, grabs the reins, when he goes and does what God has called him to do, he gets Aksa for a wife, 
and they, and they get land, and they, and they get water. And so we're seeing this picture of there. They are fully invested. They are all in. Like, God has called us to do this. We're going to go all in. We're going to go fight. We're going we're gonna to have a family. We're going to have land. We're going to settle. We're going to make sure we have water so we can grow and flourish in the place where God. So this, this picture of them, they're just invested. They're in. And we see this, this tiny picture of, man, if Israel does what God says, he's going to bless them because, because they're doing the work that he's laid out before them. Seems almost too good to be true, right? Let's see where it goes, right? From there, um, and then, verse 16, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and they settled with the people, and Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited, inhabited Zephah and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. Let's pause there. Nineteen and a half verses of good track record, right? They've been doing good. They've really been following through with what God called them to do. But nineteen and a half verses in, uh, we, get, we get this word, but, right? Have you guys ever experienced this in your own life? Man, God, I was doing good. I was, I was reading. I was in my Bible program. I was being really kind to my neighbors. I was doing this. And, and then, but, so much good. <laughs> but could they see it through to confusion? Verse 19 and a half. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had iron chariots, chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from there three sons of Anak, but... The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. It was going along so well. They were obedient. They were following after what God had called them to do. They were, they were willing to obey up to a certain point. But then they came up against chariots of iron. And they're like, Lord, I'm sorry. We were willing to do whatever you said. We were willing to bear the cost. We were willing to, but, but they had chariots of iron. What do you want us to do, right? Like, they, 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 they came to this point where they couldn't go forward anymore. They didn't fail because of a lack of strength. They failed because of a lack of faith, right? You guys remember the story of when, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, there was another chariot army, right? Do you guys remember that? The, the, the people came out of Egypt, and then Pharaoh changed his mind, and he sent all of his chariot army after the people, and they reached the Red Sea, and they were penned in, and they were freaking out, and they're like, ah, what are we? Moses, you should never should have, right? They, they flipped out, and Moses prayed, like, God, what do you want me to do? And what did God do? He opened the Red Sea. He took them across. And when the chariot army tried to follow them, he destroyed them. So do you think God is intimidated by a, an army of chariots made of iron? <laughs> right? God's seen it before. He's done it. But at this point, they lacked faith. They ceased to follow after him. Nineteen and a half good verses changed dramatically with one word, but... And the reality is that for most of us in our own life, we experience the same thing. We're going along good. We're trying to do it. We're trying to say our prayers. We're trying to, we're trying, we're trying. And then all of a sudden we come up against a big challenge. And we're like, man, I did what I could, God. You know I'm weak. You know I can't handle this. I, I'm sorry. I did my best. I gave, it a, I, I gave it the old school try, right? The old college try. But then you saw there's a, there's a haunting thing there. It says the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, and they're with them to this day, right? Their disobedience had a lasting effect. 
It gets worse. (laughs) Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, and now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he said, I'll be happy to betray my city and my countrymen. Sure, let me show you the way, right? So, so he did it, and he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, and that is its name to this day, right? They let him go. He built a city. It's remained. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ablim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, or for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So they went in, they couldn't get them out, so they were kind of stuck with them there, and then they continued to grow stronger and stronger, and they got to a point where they could have forced them out, but instead they said, hey, I got a good idea. These guys, like, we can do whatever we want with them now. Let's keep them as forced labor. Let's make them build our cities. Let's make them build our roads. Let's do to them what the Egyptians did to us. We've got this free labor force because I don't want to go out there. Do you want to go out there in the hot sun and build a road? No, I don't want to do that. Let's make these guys do it, right? Seemed like a good idea, except that it was rooted in disobedience to God. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, and so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Now the Canaanites are living among the people of Israel, right? It's getting worse. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalo, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Aksib or of Helbo or of Aphek or of Rahab, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. Now it's flipped. Now it's not the Canaanites living among them. Now they're living among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. And ultimately, verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down into the plain. The people of Dan attacked the Amorites, and the Amorites were just more determined. They had more courage and more bravery and more determination than the people of God, and they forced them back. Utter defeat. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily upon them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. And so... As we read chapter 1, it's kind of like a report, and, it, and you can tell it's kind of written from an Israelite perspective because they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, we, we were doing really good. We came up against some hard stuff, and, and we, we didn't do it totally, but they became forced labor, so you know what I mean? It's kind of like pretty good, 95% of the way there. Like, I think, I think we basically accomplished this, right? It's like uh, George Bush on the battleship with the Mission Accomplished banner going down in the back, right? Like, like, yeah, I think we did it. I think we did what God called us to do. Well, how did God feel about it? Let's look at chapter 2, the first couple of verses. Um, chapter 2, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I, bought you, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. God's judgment. You have not obeyed my voice. But God, we did not. You have not obeyed. Up till the point of the iron chariots, we were doing really good. Yeah, but you didn't obey. You've not obeyed my voice. 
What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, which means weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So the angel comes up from Gilgal, and, and Gilgal is significant because when they first crossed over into the promised land, right, when they first got in there, the first thing God said is, is like, hey, you've entered in this generation that grew up in the wilderness. Uh, they've never been circumcised. They've never been set apart from me. So I want you to circumcise all the men in the nation of Israel to, that have been born in the wilderness to, to set them apart from me. And so they did this, and as you can imagine, there was a couple days of recovery period needed after this of, of circumcising all these grown men, right? So, uh, so they're, they're in this recovery period. Joshua goes up on this hill. And there's this army angel just decked out in military gear, right? He's just standing there on top of the hill. And Joshua goes up and he's like, hey, are you, are you with us or are you with them? And he says, no, <laughs> I'm the commander of the angel army of the Lord, right? I'm not with you. I'm not with them. I'm with God. And if you're smart, you'll be with God too, right? And so saying that the angel came up from Gilgal, it's a reminder like, hey, remember who did this in the first place? Remember whose battle this was that you were fighting? This is God's not helping you. Your instruments in the hands of the Lord, you're, you're serving the Lord's army, and, and you do well to remember that, but you have not obeyed. Now, why was it so important that they drove the, the, the enemy army out of the, of the land? Why was this so important? It, it wasn't ethnic cleansing. It wasn't, it wasn't so they could get plunder. It wasn't to show that they were a superior nation. It was always spiritual in nature. There's, there were spiritual reasons for why he needed them out of the land, and that's why uh, going half-hearted on it, doing 90% of the job was not sufficient. Because the ramifications were spiritual. I want you to look in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 9. It'll be up here on the screen, I believe. Or you can flip over there in your Bible. Sword drill time, right? Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 5, it says this. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than you. Oh, but God, God, they have giants. Yeah, I knew that when I sent you. God, they have chariots made of iron. We can't. Yeah, I knew that. I told you. <laughs> You're going up against nations greater and mightier than you. They have cities that are great and fortified up to heaven, a people that are great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and, though, and of whom you have heard it was said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Anak was a giant. These were, were giant warriors that he was sending up again. He's like, God's like, I'm not surprised. I knew that you were inferior to them when I sent you. Know therefore today that he who goes before you, over before you, as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Don't, when you get in there, Israel, don't think that it's because you're so good and so lovable and so worthy that God gave you. You were such a better nation that he gave you. No, 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 that's not what God's saying. He says, whereas the reason I'm doing it, it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And so what we see here is that in this piece of history, God is using the nation of Israel as his arm of judgment against a wicked, evil nation. We know that in the end, all of us will stand before God in judgment. 
And what this is, is that God in his sovereign right, he's the, he's the one on the throne. The throne's not empty, right? He's on the throne. And if he chooses to exact judgment, he can do that. And so in this moment, he's using the nation of Israel, but he says to him, don't get cocky. <laughs> don't think this is about you. Don't think this is because you're so awesome. You guys aren't that righteous, but you're being used by me to take out a wicked and unrighteous nation. And if you leave them there, they're going to ensnare you. Because if you go in and you mingle with them, then your sons are going to marry their daughters and your daughters are going to marry their sons. And, and then the next generation in, in your homes, there's going to be a, a, a claim to worship the true God, but there's going to be idol worship and there's going to be deplorable things and there's going to be family conflict. And I love you too much to let you go into that. So you need to purge them out of the land. Don't take their plunder. Uh, just get them out. Don't keep them as slaves. I know it seems like a good idea to, to use them to build you. Don't do it. Just get them out. But they didn't obey. And so the question for us is how do, how, do, how do we connect in with this? And what I would say is this, that the main point that I want you to see here today is that every one of us, given our unique life circumstances, uh, has our own promised land that we're trying to claim uh, in our life, the territory that we're trying to, to claim in the name of God and for his glory and, for, and, and the conquest that he's laid out before us. And for every one of us, it's going to look a little bit different. Just like for the different tribes. Some of the tribes had to go into the hillside. Some, some had to go down into the plains. Some had to go over uh, by the sea. Some had to go to fortified cities. Uh, some had to, to root people out of caves in the mountains, right? They, they all had a different task. The challenge looked different for each of them, but they all had a conquest. They had a challenge, and the mission of their life was to obey God and going forward and doing that. And the same thing is true for each one of us. Every single person in this room has a unique set of experiences and challenges. You've got a family history uh, you've got medical things that, that you've dealt with. Uh, you have people who have wronged and hurt you. You have people you have wronged and hurt. You might be in a difficult marriage. You might have children who are wayward and, and not obedient. Uh, you might have dealt with a, a, a tragedy in your life. You might have experienced something really painful and difficult. You might be dealing with a disability. But every one of us in here has something that they're, they're trying to, to wrestle through. And the great challenge of your lifetime is they're going to be to persevere through that, head on in the way that God would call you to do it, in obedience to him, not taking shortcuts, not avoiding it, not ignoring it, dealing with the thing that God has allowed into your life in a way that honors and glorifies him. That's your quest. And the problem we get into is that we start envying somebody else's. They're like, man, I, I want that person's life. I want their quest. I want their challenges. I want to go, uh, you know, I, I know I'm supposed to conquer this city, but I, I, that one looks easier. I want to go over that, right? And so we all, uh, we, we, we want to flee from the, the quest that God has laid out for us. But the challenge for us is to dig deeply into it. Notice how the nation of Israel, even in the description, they rationalized. They said, hey, yeah, we couldn't get them all out, but we made them into forced labor. So that was something, right? <laughs> but half obedience is really disobedience. Partial obedience is really disobedience. And so they're, they're disobedient to God, and we can do the same thing in our lives. Uh, this, this came close to home for uh, the small group that I'm in. Uh, we've been studying through this book, The Prodigal God, uh, by Tim Keller, and it's based off of the parable by Jesus of the prodigal son, the two lost sons. And in it, uh, many of you know, the, there's the wayward son who comes running home to the father. And, and so what we found in the group is that as we, as we began to share our experiences and our, and our lives with each other is that there were many in the group who, before they could get to the point of thinking of themselves as the wayward son running back into the arms of God the Father, they had to process, hey, I've got somebody in my life who has really wronged me, and if they come running back, am I expected to, to welcome them and accept them the way the Father did? And that became a huge hurdle 
for a, a large portion of our group, uh, we could go around the room and say, man, you're dealing with this, and you're dealing with this, and you're dealing with this. And, and the easy church answer, right, uh, should I forgive that person? We say, yes, forgive them. Jesus forgave you, you forgive them, right? And we can beat people down with the Bible, and then they're like, yeah, I know that's true, but I also don't know how to do it, and so now I just feel trapped. I feel stuck. And so what we talked about is, is that, yes, ultimately you are called to forgive in the way that Jesus forgave you. Uh, but there's going to be a cost associated with that. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have to work. It might be the, the most pivotal and important thing that you do for the next several weeks or months. It might take years. Who knows how long this path of forgiveness, but, but you can't turn aside from it. You can't seek another quest. This is the quest that God has placed in front of you, and this is the one that you have to pursue. Tim Keller also points out that, um, that there, was, there was an issue of wouldn't versus couldn't, uh, right? The people said, we couldn't take the land. We couldn't kick them out. And God looked at them and said, no, 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 you wouldn't. It's not that you couldn't. It's that you wouldn't. And in our lives, there's a few places where these couldn't versus wouldn't areas pop up. One is for forgiveness, like we already talked about. One is in telling the truth when it's really hard to tell the truth, Right? God, I know I'm supposed to be honest. I know I'm supposed to tell the truth. But, man, the consequences are going to be heavy. It, it could destroy a relationship. It, you know, I'm supposed to speak the truth in love, but I don't know that I can be true in this scenario. Many of you know my story that I, I broke my leg in, in really questionable circumstances while I was at work one time. And, and instead of being honest, I, I lied about what happened so that I wouldn't have to face the consequences of it. And um, it crushed my moral picture of myself because I realized when it came down to telling a hard truth, I completely failed. Um, and it showed me how much I needed Jesus. Up to that point, I thought I had a pretty good moral record. I was feeling like I was a pretty moral person, that God must be pretty proud of me. I was 90% of the way there, but <laughs> I came to this moment, right? Many of you have experienced the same thing. The other area that he says is in temptation to sin, right? God, I, I know I'm not supposed to do it, but I, how can I not in that situation? How can I not, right? And the answer is not just willpower, like I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to will myself to forgive. I'm just going to will myself to tell the truth. I'm just going to will myself not to give in to temptation. Um, there's, the, there's a reliance on God. You've got to lean into him and say, God, I don't have the strength to do this on my own. I need you. I'm weak and I'm frail. I can't, I can't do it. This, this is an iron chariot, and I can't beat an iron chariot, but I know that you have in the past and you can again in me. It might involve uh, getting into accountability, getting into a discipleship relationship with somebody where you, where you share and you're honest with them. You say, hey, you know what? I know I put on a good face, but I'm really struggling with this. Can you pray with me? Can you speak some truth into my life? Get into a support group or a small group, right? It might involve uh, going to some Christian counseling. We have Christian counselors that we work with here in the church that will help you walk through this. It might, it might be um, putting parameters in your life. Hey, when I go into this situation, I'm tempted. Okay, well, guess what? Don't go in that situation, right? So, so, so it's, it's a whole blend. It's not, it's not just one simple, easy thing. It's, it's saying, man, the cost is high, but where else can I go? This is the path God has set me on, and I've got to embrace the cost that he's laid out before me. And if I'm willing to do that, I can trust that he will follow through. Even when I'm weak, he will show himself to be strong. You know, when you're dealing with forgiveness, what, what if there's abuse? Does that mean I put my hands back in the, place of, in, the, in the hands of the abuser? No, you know, you can't do that. So, so, so forgiveness in those scenarios looks like, hey, I, I, I pray that God will lead you to repentance and that he will change your heart. And, and I would love to have a restored relationship where we can be back into a place uh, 
if, if you come to a place of repentance and, and if you're willing to, uh, to, to be made right before the Lord and before me, I, I desire that. That's what I want the most, right? That's what forgiveness looks like. But it might be a long path to get there. Unforgiveness looks like, I don't care what you do. You can grovel. You can get down on your knees. You can beg. You can, you can try and prove your track. I don't care. I'm done with you. I'm, I, I never want to open my heart back up to you. I, I just want you to go away, right? That's what unforgiveness looks like. And so internally making that transition can happen through the grace of Jesus quickly. But the path that it takes to actually get to a restored relationship can take a long time. And we have to embrace the cost. You might say, hey, I don't want to do that. I want to go over here. I want to do this. No, nope. <laughs> sorry, right? This is the path that God's called you on. This is where he wants you. And he wants you to follow through with what you've, he's called you to in obedience. Otherwise, they become, as he says, thorns and snares. Thorns that continually prick. They make you uncomfortable. They injure you. You're, you're going along, but you always go, oh, yeah, remember that? Yeah, right? You can't, you can't go forward. And ultimately, snares that trap you and, and lead you to your death. God doesn't want that for you. The people, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they, they showed this great outward sign of, of regret and repentance and weeping. And, and, uh, but listen to what God says uh, in Joel chapter 2. He says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. At that time, it was common to, like, rip, you know, when you were really upset, you, like, rip your robe just to show how upset you were. That's, I think my kids might have done that when they found out all the Easter candy was gone. They were like, no, right? But God says, I don't want you to rip. I don't want you to make this dramatic show of regret. I want you to tear your heart open. I want you to make your heart vulnerable and and broken so that I can come in and I can fix it. I don't want you to put a hard shell around your heart. I don't want you to toughen up. I don't want you to try harder. I want you to be broken so that I can enter in and I can fill you with my love, my forgiveness, my peace. You know, as we conclude, I want, I want to point out there's, there's an interesting thing here. In, in chapter 2, uh, in verse 1, uh, we see that there's this tension that arises because God says, hey, I promised that I would, I would take you into this land and I would give you this land. Um, but in verse 3, he says, but, but I swore I wouldn't give it to somebody who, who made covenants with the enemy and, and who didn't obey me, right? And so there's this tension. Because which one's going to win out? Is God going to, is he going to kind of turn a blind eye to the justice and is he just going to love them and, and just give it to them anyways? Or is he going to hold on to his justice and say, hey, I, I love you, but I've got to be just. And so there's this tension. Which one is it going to be? Is he, is he going to, to pour out his love and his grace and his mercy on them? Or is he going to hold them accountable? And is he going to, going to exact his justice from them? And that tension remains throughout this book and throughout the Old Testament. It continues up until the time of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross, finally, it all came together. We saw that, that God's love and his justice were not opposed to one another but they were united together at the cross. God said, I love you so much that I'm going to pay the price for you. That your sin was so costly that I'm going to send my son, my only son who I love, I'm going to send him to die for your sins so that you can receive the reward that he deserved. That I am loving and I am just and I demonstrate that at the cross of Jesus. And so for broken people like us, it would be easy to come out of this and say, man, those Israelites, they just didn't try hard enough. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to set the course. I'm going to go for it. And, and yeah, there was some effort. Do you think going to battle against giants and iron chariots and fortified cities, do you think that was easy? It wasn't easy, right? Why, why do you think Israel failed in totally taking the promised land? It's a lack of faith, right? It's a lack of belief. But ultimately, they didn't do it because it was hard. <laughs> if it had been easy, 
that lack of faith wouldn't have been exposed. That lack of belief wouldn't have been exposed. But it was hard. And so all their weaknesses came to the surface when it got hard. The reason we don't do these things in our life is because they're hard. And because we can't do it in our own strength. And so we have to lean into the cross of Jesus. That Jesus says, because I forgave you, you can forgive others. Because I love you, you can love in a way that, that you're not capable of yourself. And because I love you, and I've placed an identity on you, whatever that person has done to you, that's not who you are. Who you are is defined by your relationship with me, that you're my child, and I love you, and you're whole and complete within that, regardless of what has happened outside. And when you begin to live within the power of gospel, it frees you to walk forward in obedience and in the power of the cross. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the, uh, the example of the Israelites. I just thank you for your, how your word continually shows us our need for you, Lord. And, and if we're willing this morning, Lord, if we're willing to come before you and admit that we're not strong enough, I know that you'll say, just like you said to the Israelites, I knew you weren't strong enough when I sent you in there. I knew you couldn't do it in your own strength. That's why you have to rely on me. I know you want us to rely on you, Lord. Also, you know that you want us to, to move forward in obedience and that you want to give us victory over these things in our life and that you're faithful to do that when we do it not in our own strength but in your strength. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, help us to, to trust in you more. Help us to believe that, that you really are the answer, that what Jesus did on the cross makes a difference in the most difficult situations in our life, that what he did there changes everything and it enables to do things that we can't do on our own. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.